welcome to the first one of the Story Society. Thanks uh, everyone for joining. Today we've got Eve, Ellie, Lizzie and myself, Kate. And we're discussing Adam Kay's book, This Is Going To Hurt. It's been a bit of a bestseller and there's been loads of things written on it and I know it stirred up some interesting articles with Jeremy Hunt at the time. So we've chose it as one of our first books. Uh, we're joining Ellie as a nurse, so hopefully that adds a little bit of context and hopefully you enjoy the first one of this. First things first, I guess, what did everyone think of the book? Well, I enjoyed it. As someone, I, I don't know loads about, like, junior doctors. Um, my parents both were medics, but um, also, like, in compa- comparison to him at the beginning of the book, where he goes, I, by default, became a medic because my parents and all my family were medics. My parents went, no, 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 don't become a medic because they were medics. <laughs> so, um, so, like, some of the things that I read in there kind of rang chimed with some of the stories that they had told me um but by and large as a book I thought that like the writing was really really good um and it was whipped along really quickly yeah I thought it was really funny in parts and also quite it may be less surprising because I hear some stories from Ellie but um <laughs> who is a nurse in case you hadn't realized <laughs> but um I really enjoyed it I read it really quickly which I'd heard of I'm quite, because I'm such a slow reader. Yeah. But it was really easy to dip in and out of as well, because each anecdote was so short and just entertaining. So, yeah, I, that's why I, I enjoyed it. In and out. I know you didn't quite finish it. No, I haven't <laughs> finished it, but that was just because life got really busy. But when I first got it, so I, I bought it and I went down to the coast for the weekend and I started reading it. And um, my husband was reading over my shoulder and then kept, and then when I put it, the book down to chat to my mum about something, because it's like you say, it's a book you can dip in and out. Yeah. She'd read a few pages, put it down, then he'd pick it up, then he'd start reading, and then I got lost. Being those sort of like, I guess, diary entries, you kind of go, oh, I've just, oh, I've got two more minutes. Oh, I can quickly read the next bit and the next bit, and then I sort of ended up sitting at my desk reading some of it. Mm. So I'd read it on the commute, and then I kind of got to work and I carry on reading. <laughs> Everyone was like looking over my shoulder, like, what are you doing? <laughs> But I really enjoyed it. And I guess one of the most memorable parts of that was the bit around the decluffing of the penis. Oh god, that was so And that reaction was the reaction I had on the tube and the guy sitting opposite me just like looked at me like, What is she reading? What is going on over there? It was so grim. I was on the tube as well and I just did that, you know when you do that physical Yeah, it looks like (laughs) The boys bit more into than the girls bit. I think loads more. That's so true. With the women, that is equally as traumatic. So there were bits that I found. I I think partly because we all talk about it quite a lot more. Yeah. And I guess maybe it's. I don't know. What do you think? I I don't know whether part of it was because it was outside the context. It was describing something outside the context of the hospital. Um, immediately, once something's in the hospital, for me, I felt that I, once I could picture things happening in the hospital, it kind of feels like, yeah, bad things are going to happen in there. But the idea of someone of having the injury outside and sliding down a lamppost was just very... The idea of it happening really was very graphic. Because there was another bit with a woman where she gets impaled... Oh God! A yes. spike through her abdomen, and I had a similar effect with that because she's running away from the police and she's 
taking Yeah, and it went up, didn't it? And it goes up through, she foot climbs over a fence and then jumps off and it goes up through her <laughs> vagina and pokes back it's out so through bad. her abdomen. And that bit, I was like, oh my God, that is disgusting as well. So I think I had an equal, those two were my highlights of the most like highlights <laughs> I mean it just is all very like believable it's just like a, a it could have been any single one of my colleagues writing this book and it feels like very familiar it's like oh okay so you read this story and it's like ha like such and such told me this you yeah. know like I'm gonna have in the future I think I'll have memories and be like oh so there was this one time and I'll be like oh no that wasn't me that was Reddit that yeah, like one of those stories was, I think, the example of the girl who uses the Kinder Egg. It was uh, February 29th, mm. and she takes the Kinder Egg and she puts the ring in the Kinder Egg, and then she pops it up herself. And then she suggests that her fiancé has a little play and then basically tries to find it, but can't get it out. So then she goes into hospital, like, the egg's rotated instead of, like, the easy way to go. It's kind of rotated lengthways. So she could, they couldn't get it out. So obviously quite easily able to yeah. take it out with a speculum or whatever. Mm. And then when, <laughs> but then they wouldn't, she wouldn't say what was in it. So there was this oh. whole kind of weird bit of handing over the egg to the husband to like, with gloves to undo. And then he found the ring. And then there's like loads of parts where he just comes up with different names for things where he doesn't want to be rude or write it explicitly. Ellie, do you want to read this bit? Ophelia would be shoving gallstones up your ass. I just made it up. Orbito bello nophilia, sticking needles in your eyes. And craniophilic anatomosis is dickhead. I don't get that one. Yeah. That's quite funny. I don't get the end bit, the anatomosis. Mosis, but craniophallic makes sense. Well, I use that in day to day language. Anatomosis would just be the moving movement of anatomy. Okay. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's basically because it's the head, head the penis moving, like merging. <laughs> the merging of the head and the penis. Yeah. Or something. I might use that in day to day life. This person, craniophallic. Well, you are so craniophallic. I like that. You could use it at work and everyone would just look at you like, well, you might not be able to use it at work. But <laughs> I feel like I could use it at work and be like, you're being really craniophallic today. Well, there's like constant references, isn't there, to um, relationships that he has outside of the hospital mm. and how difficult they are to maintain. Um, and like there's, there's one where he's talking to his best friend and his best friend is breaking up with him because he doesn't spend enough time with him anymore. And he's like, I've used work as every excuse, but it's not really an excuse. Well, I don't know. There is a point where I get, I don't know, to me that's kind of, surely your friends should be slightly more understanding of the role that you've got as well. Yeah, but it was like his friend Stag do, his friend's wedding. Yeah, no, no. Christmas. He made the christening. Yeah, I get that. But that, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. I do understand not wanting to go to the christening in the same way. Yeah. But then a lot of the time it is just completely last minute that you're not able to go in. 
No, I, I did find that quite shocking how, like, all of his holidays, and there's one bit where he's on holiday to New York or something like that with his partner. Oh, yeah, and yeah. And they're booked for two weeks, and then he's got to cover, like, a weekend in between, mm. and he just has to go back because they won't pay for a local to cover it or something like that. And I was like, oh, that must be just so... So depressing. ...and so annoying having to let down everyone all the time. It just must be so... I can imagine it must take such a massive toll on you because not only are you having to quite often let down people in work, but then outside of work you're always having to compromise things and let down people. Uh, imagine that must like erode your sense of like control and like self-esteem so much. Um, yeah, yeah, I think continuous like having to cancel or having to change plans is really difficult. I mean. And then even before having to cancel or do anything, it's very difficult to make plans in the first place. Yeah, non-committal. Yeah. Really hard to kind of, I guess, you can't say, yes, I'm definitely going to be there because you don't know if you're going to have a shift. And at the end of the day, even if you do commit and you've booked holiday, you still might be called in at the last minute. I suppose that for me, I took away that it just amazes me how for granted often people seem to take that part of the job and even he makes anecdotes to some of the patients about some of the patients in the book just how rude they are or how rude their families are to him and I'm always kind of that just astonishes me how people just don't have any mm. concept of how hard someone is working and to speak to them in those kind of terms yeah and uh, he puts it quite nicely in that kind of sense that he or the way he's processed it and I think many people do um, actually do believe it is that this idea of the doctor being this infallible human being that can't get things wrong that you know they are this they they know exactly what they're doing and that helps people process the situation that they're in as well so it yeah. kind of means that this doctor or anyone in the medical profession you just see them as a, a unit more than a person um, and very often that means that the treatment of them when you're in hospital is generally like quite callous in some ways but that was interesting as well because there's one bit where he talks about a discussion within like the mess room and how one of the nurses picks up on how they should be changing the names of uh, patients we shouldn't say this anymore we should be talking oh, about them as clients oh yeah and uh that must have been like some kind of health reform or something come down yeah <laughs> and he could just um tell that he was bristling at it at that moment Mm. Um, and hoping that someone in the room would pick up on it. He does very clearly kind of state he has quite a strong political angle mm. in writing the book, yeah, but you does. never feel like it's kind of forced down your throat. Yeah. Um, everything's written in quite a way that's quite... Although you do get humour, it's quite, like, factual in some ways. He does kind of almost describe the situations quite, like... Yeah, and the clinic allows, yeah. And allows the reader to make their own, like, own judgement of... Yeah, he's very clever. So you do the same in, let's imagine if he was making his patient notes as well. So mm -hmm. you, you don't write anything subjective in there because anything that you write in those notes can be going to, like, let's say, a court of law and they can get read out in yeah, front of that true. person. So you have to be very kind of diplomatic in what you're saying. And it's quite funny. So you can you always think about what you're writing and how it's going to be read. And you're, sometimes I'll write something and I'll be like, oh, 
they'll delete it. I'll write something else. And pop off. <laughs> <laughs> I'll delete it again. Then I'll write something else. It'll be like a very like dull way of saying what I was trying to say initially. So now I have like my own kind of codes in, in how I would write something, so that if if I was to then read that in a court of law or whatever, I could then it decode it for myself to be like, ah, oh, that's what I meant. Okay, yeah. so I use that word to describe this kind of. I mean, what struck me is how there are so many parts where it's kind of coping mechanisms, and this bit really stood out to me. The doctors um, have one of the highest suicide rates. 85% of doctors have experienced mental health issues, and 13% admitted to having suicidal feelings. I don't know what the national average is, but I think that's quite high. Seems high. Yeah. 2009 paper in British Journal of Psychiatry showed that young female doctors in the UK are two and a half times more likely than other women to kill themselves. I think it's like that in itself is quite like, I think it's quite shocking because mm. like these people are meant to be taking care of you and if they're not able to even take care of themselves, it just feels like really, I don't know, it just seems pretty wrong to be really blank about it. And then you have, I think he comments there was a point where he's saying that he's in a he's holding clinic and someone comes in he's overweight and he has to tell them to lose weight is a better way of conceiving and he's like but I'm so <laughs> he's wearing the heart pace rate monitor or something and he's got like high <laughs> yeah, blood pressure yeah. and he's having to tell someone to lose weight and lower their blood pressure and he's like well the irony of this is that mine's way worse than yours is no, he does that in another bit as well. Like, um, I think there's a bit where he, they, he's got someone who's relapsed into anorexia or something like that, and then he makes a pithy comment, and she's, like, pregnant or something, he makes a pithy comment, but she's still eating more than I have today. Yeah. Because, again, he's been right, again, so true much story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which in itself is, like, it's very wrong that people who are kind of... I suppose it's very difficult to give advice. It's always, like, that thing of, do what I say, not what I do. Mm-hmm. But even when you want to make the right decision, because of the environment that you're working in, it's, impos- it's next to impossible to make that right decision. I mean, there are um, things happening in terms of in- increasing kind of well-being and, I guess, support for colleagues. But actually, there's nothing. It's like you say, like people that work in healthcare professions are just seen as these people who will just fix anything. And most people that work in healthcare have this kind of outward personality of wanting to help other people before they help themselves. And you can see it, it's completely, for some people it becomes completely detrimental and that's why you get this burnout. So I think, you know, the way that the book comes to an end when he's just like, uh, had enough, I see it happening a lot. So so many doctors and, and nurses as well so many doctors will finish their rotation and then I'll say oh what are you doing next and so I'm packing it in I'm done with that might come back to it in, in next year but I'm done with that might do some locoming and um, it's the same with nurses but with nurses because you don't have the end of their rotation it's just kind of like they just fade out they just say no I'm really done with this I'm, I'm enjoying it mm. But it, it's hard, and it. I think it's a struggle as well because a lot of people want out of the profession or they want something else to balance it. But because of the the hours in which you're working and the, the 
being so tired, you're not able to commit to anything else. Yeah. So there's no escape really. For, all, for a lot of people, they feel like there's no escape mm. out of it. It's either all or nothing. And you just get this very kind of like pent really up, pent up, pent up. And then like an explosion of like, no, from now on, no, I'm out. So the end of the book for me wasn't surprising. And I've seen a lot of people where there's been one particular case that will be you know the end of it that's, yeah that's it's a it. trigger it's a trigger it's like mm. you know but it's not really coming from nowhere it's more just you haven't had the time to really sit back and think about it i think it came at a time so in the book it came at a time when his he'd broken up from his partner so he was then living alone in this bachelor pad that he describes there and it's just you can kind of just imagine that there was no support network mm. and from inside the hospital or like inside the profession there very limited amount of support in terms of well I mean like I suppose I mean obviously we talk about it sometimes but the amount of emotional stuff that you have to take on you have to deal with really difficult things on a daily basis and from what I've understood there's very minimal if any support mm. like, but there's no time for it so and there's what, no time allowed or given to it, which mm, doesn't yeah, it do, which doesn't help, you know. So it's kind of self perpetuating. You're having and it's in other industries like occupational health or whatever is um and is taken seriously or at least given lip service to. Mm. But if you have say I don't know you're suffering from stress or. You, I don't know, something bad happens, I don't know, someone passes away and you have to deal with grief, etc., or a tra- some form of trauma, then it's allowed and becoming, thankfully, more acceptable to take counselling and that's kind of more accepted. But it seems that the people who are having to deal with the most difficult things on a day-to-day basis, well, ultimately life and death every day, and it is very, it can't, it's obviously very traumatising, get absolutely no support or counselling or any way of allowing them to work their own ways through that as well as on top of that having absolutely no time to digest it or do that personally and maintain a life outside of work so it's kind of like all you're doing is throwing more and more on top of the same people who at the end of the day you're completely and utterly reliant on Mm. and everyone's going to need at some point I find it quite weird as well because I know with like counselling and people who do kind of psycho psychology yeah that kind of stuff they are they are required as if once they're professionals you know as part of their maintain, maintaining mm. their professional qualification to have consultations with like someone i don't know what like twice a month or something so they have to sit down and basically have therapy themselves yeah and it seems really bizarre that they get that but then someone who is a you know and in, in in other professions they have an inbuilt like you know session where you've got some sort of pastoral support where if you've had a week or every two weeks you have to check in with someone and have a bit of a chat through everything that's happening yeah there just doesn't seem to be anything like that um which i was really surprised at. but it's also difficult in that okay so i think there are counseling people but you need to go on your own time one thing um but even if um somebody will try and you know, start this initiative of like well-being stuff. It's so hard to get out of your mindset of you're at work, you've got this, this, and this, and this, and this to do. Like you prioritize everybody else, and then for somebody to come away and say, "I'll just come upstairs and we're gonna have a little like well-being meeting," you're like, 
I don't have time. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you should make the time. But then if I make the time to do that, then I'm behind with everything else. Mm. And I'm just going to come back to people being really pissed off at me and shouting at me even more. And it's like, oh. Um, so it's, not it, a, it's an engagement thing as well. But it, It's not as simple then as just saying, yeah. oh, here's an app. We're going to pay for your counselling. But the fact is, is that the, the workload is completely ridiculous. Mm. Completely ridiculous. The um, shortages in doctors and nurses is just crazy <coughs> so for every shift you've got agency or an locum every single shift and um, and sometimes they're just not supported as well so it's just yeah everyone's working harder and they're working so hard and like it that he mentions in there that he's with a patient and he keeps on getting bleeped from A&E and um and he have their targets to meet and mm. then he, he gets told well I'm not happy about this mm. and it's like yeah but I've told you like I, this situation or this situation I what what is worse and I've given my justification and I could never do anything other than that and um it, but it just it still remains that people can still throw this like oh you haven't seen me in the 15 minutes that I've been sat here and they it's like they're out to be yeah. Three hours. It's like, well, it's because actually the demons and bleep is far sicker than you. Mm. And but people don't have um, any empathy when they're unwell. So it's not always, but when people are unwell, they lack empathy for for others, especially family members of people who are unwell will lack any empathy for anyone else other than the one person they're concerned about. Mm. And that's where it becomes. Yeah, mm. which I guess in some way, like I completely can, em- yeah, you can I can empathise yeah. with being like that as well because you're oh, I in that. Yeah, I, I think I'm the, the, the <laughs> sickest person in the world sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> sore throat or hungover. No, I don't really. Care. No, don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm lucky in that way. But it was more. It, but I think so. For me, like one of the examples that he uses in the book is where the red trousered. Or I don't think he's obviously a man, and his mum's being looked after by him, oh, and he's yeah. really, re- and the the son is really, really, really rude mm. to him, and just mm. treats him like dirt. Well, why are you, you better do the best job? Blah 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 blah, and gives him like a load of BS. And the mum is sort of a nice old lady, and she's like, "Well, I'm still going to do the best job because that's the right thing to do, no matter how much of an a hole you've been to me, and it's not going to get seen any faster or." deal any differently but um but you know sometimes have to deal with that stuff sometimes they will get seen quicker just because they're so mm. annoying he says that in the book actually yeah. as well he's like and it's so frustrating but i've done it as well <coughs> it's been just so disruptive and so annoying and disruptive to everybody you just have to some of the bits, actually, some of the shocking, more shocking bits in the book were where he did take a little bit of, like, mini-retribution. So I think there's that one where he was doing, I don't know whether it was a cesarean or something, and someone had been really rude to him. I can't remember what exactly it was, but then the way he got her back um, was that she had a tattoo of a dolphin on her. Oh, belly, yeah, and it went and he, slightly skew with. <laughs> oh, no, 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 the head off or something. He didn't, but he was, he was thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. he said that um, in his thought process, he was like, I wonder whether I could, like, decapitate this dolphin. And then he was like, no, I'm not going to get away with this. <laughs> <laughs> in a court of law. In a court of law, there's no way that this would have um, <laughs> happened. So, no, but. One of the bits that I did find really like 
really sad was the bit about Ron's dad in hospital and the way you have to fudge over because Ron, the Ron's Ron the one best who's mate, yeah. and then his dad gets oh cancer. yeah, gets, oh yeah, that was and there's awful. that call or he emailed or something and says the symptoms and he obviously immediately recognised that he was like gone and he's in like final stages of like a really aggressive cancer and he just had to basically kind of be like. You know, he didn't. You can't say that. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, you can't make any clinical judgment. One over throwing two on a, a friend the conflict of interest. It would just be unfinished. I mean, but there are. Okay, taking it up a note, there are <laughs> bits that I really enjoyed. So I put down the bit where it's like um, when they kind of think about uh, some of the names that he kind of gives. They give the kids, but then there's the bit where he's like. A slightly unfortunate surname means that there's a sticker that says Baby Raper. Because obviously this parent's yeah. name is like Mr. and Mrs. Well, actually, that's really awkward. There's a bit as well when he's talking um, to one of his new SHOs and says, do you want to see me sex the baby? And oh, yeah. <laughs> Joe just like, gives him a look of disgust and walks off the other way. And he's like, I should have been a little bit more specific. about <laughs> the agenda of this baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because uh, there are really funny bits, which I think is why it's so um, clever that it takes you like up and down and still allows you to think. And to me, that's like the beauty of, um, in general, like that's the beauty of good comedy is that it makes you think outside of what they're telling you. So you laugh about something and then you kind of, the next layer you get is, oh, oh, that's sad. Oh, and then that hits, it almost hits home better than someone mm. being much more blatant about it. Yeah, I did feel like I was laughing and then like getting emotional and yeah, I felt like a big roller coaster of emotions, but but it was the way it's done is very clever. That was another bit I liked um, where he was a bit deviant and um, he advised a girl how to get a C section. Yeah, and I put a note on that. Because that's really relevant at the moment, isn't it? Because um, I can't remember, but loads of uh, hospitals don't offer C-sections um, for various reasons. And he was just mentioning how, actually, this girl was not going to be able to get a C-section. He was like, no, we don't do it in the hospital unless like you can really thoroughly justify health reasons for it. But then like internally, he's obviously he had a little thought about how the fact that you know, two thirds of his any of his gynecology colleagues would always have it because it was much more safe and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. So he basically kind of rewords what on earth she basically has to say to him in order for him to be able to note it down as a C section. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, right. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was really lovely. I made a note it was of such it. like a lovely personal <laughs> moment where he was like doing little like fuck you to the hospital and well, like, the a favour to a real person yeah one of the reasons he thinks this has hit home so much as a book isn't specifically him but it's because everyone knows someone or majority of people know someone who has worked in the NHS or and most pretty much everyone has dealt with it directly mm. but people know people who work in the NHS directly so it really relates to them and I think from that perspective helps yeah because that's, I think, why people have really warmed to it. But to be fair, he's a really good writer as well. Yeah, he's really good at writing. And I think that's what the helps it kind of go through. He's mm. very succinct, isn't it? It's just like... There's no, like, yeah. he's really went through it with, like, a fine toothpick or comb or whatever and just, like, slashed out anything that's, like, flabby. Like, yeah. there's no, like, room for... 
schmaltz or sentimentality. Yeah, like, exactly. And that's what makes it, you know, those moments feel more impactful for you. Like, he's been really clever at holding it down. The other bit I thought was interesting was his comments on private healthcare. I was like, I'm not getting my... Never, <laughs> not that I would anyway, but I was like, I'd never get it done privately. Because he was just... Where he was saying, like, if it goes wrong, if you're you're going to have to go to hospital anyway if something goes fundamentally wrong with any of the, like, surgery or C-section or anything like that. So you'd have, you to, have to go into A&E or something. Oh, yeah, we get loads of people from private things. And loads of people who just don't have follow-up from private. Or if they don't pay for the follow-up or... Well, probably. Yeah, probably not covered for it. Because, yeah, you, yeah, it's like an insurance plan, isn't it? When you go in, you're like, uh, do I need a warranty on my phone after I buy it? No, it's like £300 more. I'll just, you know. And it's the same thing with healthcare. You think, oh, no, what are the risks? You weigh up the risk and think, oh, no, it's quite unlikely because it's sold to you as being unlikely. And then you think, okay, so I'll just go for it. And then, yeah. Don't know why. I, crazy. Absolutely crazy. No, there's definitely, like, I do definitely think that there is um, room for private healthcare. I think that it does take pressure off the NHS and it does, for elective things, it makes it um, easier mm. um, and quicker. Definitely and if you can't afford the aftercare, then great. Um, and likewise with other things like physiotherapy, go private, why not? Yeah. Um, osteopathy, go private, why not? Like, there are, There's there so are many other, private areas that you can do things, it. You know, when people come in for chronic pain, it's like, well, what have you done to try and make it right? And it's, it's yeah, because physio on the NHS is much more kind of... Which I'm saying, it's like the minimum. It's kind of like, this is exercise you can do. It's not quite to so... Your, you're to regain movement, but you're yeah. not to, to fully... Yeah, it's... Um, yeah. But private surgery, well, I've done it. But I wouldn't go for serious pri- like surgery privately. Like big, major ops. Not after that. <laughs> Not after reading that. It's <laughs> <laughs> really nearby. <laughs> yeah. I think for me, I found like part of the clinic stuff more entertaining. Like, the conversations that he would have with people rather yeah. than the actual, mm. like, random things that he did. And I just think it's quite interesting to... I like this one. So, a patient in antenatal clinic told me today she was taking Dorothy every morning because she was feeling stressed. Who's Dorothy? Some great aunt she was escorting down to the shops with a strange, strange kind of chill-out exercise, like a mental health assistance dog. She informed me Dorothy was a street name for ketamine. Does it help with the stress? I asked. And that was a generally interested question. <laughs> yeah, it is those sort of bits that I definitely like found most amusing. Yeah. And I liked it when they did have like um, little discussions within like their mess area. So obviously, clearly, I think I, I would have liked if there were more of that in the book yeah. as well. Um, I don't know if that's a reflection genuinely of his experience. Like, he didn't have that much time to sit down and have a chat to people in this mess area. But I liked it when they had kind of, like, um, they kind of did trade-offs over, you know, what was their worst day yeah. and what was the worst thing that's happened mm. to them. Or, um, I thought those bits were really lovely um, and could have been more of them. But 
You've had another bit. I found another bit, which is about the doctor's mess. So um, in the doctor's mess, my friend Zach, currently working working in orthopedics, tells me that he always muddles the words shoulder and elbow in his mind and has to really concentrate before using either term. Before he even had time to process this and what it could mean for his next patient, an intensive care registrar joins in from the next sofa. Since childhood, she's always malapproped the words coma and cocoon. The more she tries to remember which is which, the more her mind convinces her she's got it the wrong way around. She shows up a piece of paper in her wallet that reads, cocoon equals insects, coma equals patient. This, we hear, helps prevent the admittedly hilarious scenario of sitting down in an inconsolable, uh, to an inconsolable relative to break the news that their husband is now in a cocoon. <laughs> So I had the, uh, so I quite enjoyed this bit. He tells me from a, a story from a few years ago. An elderly woman presented to him in clinic complaining of lower abdomen pain. After performing various other investigations, he sent her for an X-ray. The principal finding was the ab- was the presence of a spoon in her abdominal cavity. After asking various patients questions, have you ever eaten a spoon? <laughs> Do you stick spoons up your vagina or rectum? It seemed unlikely the origin of the object would be discovered, but it was causing her pain and needed to be removed at open surgery under general anaesthetic. Sure enough, at surgery, nestled amongst her intestines and other gizzards, was a dessert spoon. On removal, its only notable features were a number of scratches on the rear surface and the words Property of St. Theodore's Hospital stamped onto the handle. I enjoyed this bit. Um... It's about a woman in Laban just arrived. And um, the husband tells me he checked before they left home. She was six centimetres dilated. Most dads-to-be don't peek under the hood, so I asked him if he's a medic. No, he tells me. He's a plasterer. I know what a centimetre is, mate. Yeah. I've heard so many stories, though. uh, Recently, a friend uh, went into labour, and her husband was like, oh, you've got ages, you've got ages. I wouldn't worry. They're just going to send us home. And she's like, no, like, I genuinely feel like this is, we're, we're quite hope. He wouldn't look under the hood. She was like, we're really close. Like, she was like, I'm in too much pain for this to be like Braxton Hicks. Like, mm. I'm definitely in quite late stages of labour. Mm. She, by the time he pers- she persuaded him to take her to the hospital, she was literally crowning. He was like, oh, but I just needed a quick nap before I went because I knew I wouldn't have any sleep. <laughs> <laughs> men yeah 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 my, my my sister went in to labor she thought she was only like she's like oh maybe i'm just a couple of centimeters and they're like oh no you're far further through than than we thought yeah because people like, get like, sent home don't they yeah well that's why i thought we thought worst comes the worst we turn up to hospital and we get sent home but they're like no no you stay here <laughs> But I guess that's one of the things that makes this book so relevant is we've all got a story that's linked to the NHS somehow and that makes it so relevant and gives you so much to say. Some of the anecdotes were a bit graphic Mm. but I don't mind graphic so it was fine but I I have read some reviews on it where people think that he they don't like the way that he kind of makes some things that are really serious funny Oh, I love the way that he does that. Because yeah. that's his coping mechanism. And then yeah. if he did get to the end of the book, you realise that that doesn't work as his coping mechanism anymore and that he just leaves. Like, mm, yeah. Exactly. It, 
it um, worked it worked yeah. so far but but it, it didn't work for it, the final yeah, the final yeah. thing didn't but like the final thing it all sort of came in at the same time of I think a breakdown of his relationship as well mm. so he had like this a couple of things before he had been talking about moving out yeah and wasn't really like half asked about it was just yeah. kind of like Oh, yeah, that was very yeah. dry. Mm. Um, it's more like a fat. Yeah, it was like a more factual bit, but kind of a tragic humour to it. Mm. Yeah, it's a very yeah. dark humour. And then the whole thing is, I'd say, dark humour. Mm. It comes to the end, and it, it's just not funny anymore. And like the the last bit of the book is like it just wasn't funny anymore. He couldn't find the humour in it. And yeah. When he stopped finding any humour, then he was unable to deal with it. So. You have to have a yeah, yeah. certain amount of yeah, of coping mechanism. Yeah, and for coping. a lot of people, it's it's humour. Yeah, well, I guess it's kind of like I suppose the final thing that happens with the lady. Well, actually, we don't know what happened to her either. Mm. We I don't know, she, know whether she lived or yeah, we're not sure. I'm gonna. I made the assumption, I guess, that she survived, but then couldn't have children again. That yeah. was the assumption I'd made. Yeah. Mm. Um, but I guess it was so traumatic and he couldn't find anything in it that was funny. But the rest of the, his career, he's kind of managed to maybe be lighthearted on it. Or it's not necessarily directly his fault. Yeah. But then he comes to the end and he kind of can't... But he hasn't built up that coping mechanism maybe in the same way some others do. But also it was a surprise. Like in, in every situation, you've already mapped out what the worst that could happen is mm. and what... And it hit in in his mind and in that other doctor's mind, they were going in for a, a pretty straightforward procedure and everything had been checked up until yeah. um, the last bit. So it was kind of like a, a freak thing Yeah, that he was like, I wasn't prepared for this. And then he still goes back saying, I should have been, or I could have been, but I didn't do anything less than what my colleagues would have done. So it, it, yeah, it's just that he's blaming himself, but it was the surprise of it. It is difficult. I think, well, it must be very emotionally difficult to deal with stuff, especially when it's kind of that hard to deal with and, as you say, like, unexpected. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's no rationale behind it as well. There's no way of rationalising it to anything other than something else you could have done. Yeah. So I suppose that the what you feel, or you might, I don't know, potentially feel as him as a doctor coming in is the fen- the, sa- the, the kind of feeling that you can instill a sense of control over the situation yeah. but clearly having absolutely having him and his what's name, SHO, SHO yeah. and also the senior yeah. consultant and involved he, and they he made it so clear that that SHO was amazing but I think part of it was that he kind of lost control of that situation mm. because we don't know whether had it been him if he had hit the presenter first he might have realized immediately and stopped whereas you know I, I don't know it's just I I think it was a loss of control and mm. a loss of being able to like process what happened but anyway that's the end of the book that is the end of the book but the rest of it's really interesting I, I found it really interesting I think it was quite a like I don't know I think it shows it really highlights how hard not only doctors but other members of the NHS work mm-hmm. And that really, I think, sums it up how all of us really enjoyed this book. And I guess to bring it to a close, uh, how much we all value people who work in the NHS. So thank you, everyone. 
Um, and I hope you enjoyed the first one of the Story Society. So, you know, the next book will be Nora Ephron's Heartburn. And we're looking to do that in October. So for those of you who want to get started, go ahead and read it. And then we'd be love to hear your comments. Thanks a lot. Bye. If you're interested, follow us on Instagram at the Story Sock. Also, review, subscribe, and we'll keep you updated. Uh, and feel free to add comments and send them through to the Story Society at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear your comments on these and we can include them in our next book club. Thanks a lot. Bye.